0: Liftoff, we have a liftoff. 32 minutes
1: past the hour. Tower cleared. And as Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO. Consciousness podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here.
2: Set recorder for three and three quarters speed, four track. This is 12.25 p.m. July 8, 1962. This is Earl Neff and Bob Grove in the backyard of their home in Strongsville, Ohio. Bob and I are assigned to Skywatch for three hours between 11 a.m. and 2 p.m. Oh, hi, Bob. How are you? Bob. Hi,
0: Errol. Uh, how long has this Skywatch been going on? We started this. A uh, number of the members of Cleveland Ufology Project thought it might be a good idea to try this. Uh experimentally, we began Friday evening with one of our members starting the 5 o'clock p.m. watch. Uh, He went until midnight, then uh, this is going to last probably, we hope at least, until, of course, this is Sunday. It's been going now for uh, two days, and we're hoping to last right up through until early at least this evening.
2: Uh, Bob, uh, I think it would be interesting to uh, tell the audience uh, the type of
0: work you do. Well, I'm a school teacher. I teach... Physics, physical science, and space science, which is a sort of a composite of electronics as well as uh, the new founded space science, over at Root High School in North Royalton. I see.
2: Recently, I understand you took a trip to Canada with the, I think your main purpose was to interview Robert Smith. Is That's that right.
0: Uh, it was one of two main purposes, The uh, one of which was actually a honeymoon. <laughs> oh, my wife and I, uh, who at that time had been married uh, four months, this was, as you know, two weeks ago, and uh, we thought it was about time we had a honeymoon. <laughs> so, Did you
2: um um, meet with the success up there. You did, did get to
0: interview Wilbur Smith in spite of his illness? Yes, uh, despite his illness, we had, I feel, a very successful interview with him. It amounted to two meetings of a couple hours each. And uh, as a result of this, I feel that I came back rich with information. Uh, I won't say that all of the information necessarily do I agree with, nor really... Uh, would I condemn any of it. The information is uh, all founded, I feel, on a very sincere, dedicated, and intelligent reasoning process on the part of Mr. Smith. And this is, of course, uh, the primary purpose of our recording, is to go over some of this material.
2: Yes. Um, in the Cleveland Ufology Project, of course, we approach the subject of UFOs from a scientific angle, the same as NICAP does, the same as APRO does. And we um, uh, I think it might be well if you would uh, mention here just who Wilbur Smith is for the benefit of anyone who might be in doubt. All right. Wilbert B.
0: Smith was director of the project which we referred to in the early 50s as Project Magnet, which, of course, was Canada's uh, introduction to governmental pursuits of the UFO phenomena. Uh, Wilbert Smith, being a member of the Transportation Board of Canada, which is uh, very similar to our Federal Communications Commission and uh, other means of both communication and transportation and the Canadian Board, they have actually a combined effort in these parts.
2: I re- remember reading a number of articles of his in uh, Flying Saucer Review of London, uh, some years ago, uh, being at the home of uh, George Popwich, the director of the Akron UFO Research Committee, I also recall uh, reading quite a long letter by uh, Wilbert Smith. Uh, it was very, very interesting to me. He referred at that time in that letter, as I recall, about the uh, uh, hardware that he felt that we had in this country. I see a few drops of rain dropping here right at the moment. I wonder if this is going to put a stop to our sky watch or is this nothing more than a passing cloud? Well
0: the sun is back out. It's twelve
2: thirty five and I guess we can start in paper to think our machine will get wet here. Oh
0: I think not. We might have at least another minute of success. <laughs> so far we haven't seen any UFOs. Since I've been out here. Today. Not too many. The clouds are kinda of broken, however it is, um Mostly cloudy. I'd say we probably have a coverage of a good 70%. Did you say there was a
2: sighting last night?
0: We had a sighting the night before last. Uh, One of our members, Frank Kohler, and his wife, Bergo, were on a shift which uh, lasted from actually uh, 5 in the afternoon. I mentioned this was the first shift, and they occupied that. It was from 5 in the afternoon until midnight, Uh, and they and I were both out, uh, they in their own yard and I in my own, were looking skyward for several hours. Uh, during this time, I had to go in uh, to do some work, and I got a call from Frank that he had just seen an object in trajectory from the southwest to the northeast. We double-checked to make sure that it was not echo uh, or any of the satellites. <clears throat> uh, upon Uh, This information, why we went ahead, of course, and made out a UFO report as per a regular form, which I have run out. Um, It seemed to him to be a pulsating uh, silvery light looking much like a star, pulsating two times per second, approximately. And he watched the thing uh, from the time it appeared, which was a little bit up in the southwest, until its disappearance some minutes later. uh, Approximately, I believe, he said uh, five or ten minutes later in the northeast. I
2: saw one uh, on the night of the 4th of July. This uh, was a result of a call I'd received from a party I had never heard of before. She had my phone number and called me. And uh, they had been watching it for about 10 minutes. The night before, uh, Alan Manick uh, had called our home and uh, reported having seen one with his neighbors for, I think, something like 20 minutes. The following day, uh, after I had seen this, I called him, and uh, we checked for position, for altitude, and uh, uh, angle from the horizon, and so forth, and color, and it seemed that it uh, tallied completely with what he had seen the night before, so it may have been one of the same object. Well, let's get back to the discussion that we really started here about uh, Wilbert Smith, um, you arrived in. Uh, this is Ottawa, where he lives.
0: That's right. He actually lives in City View, which is a residential suburb to the southwest uh, of the city of Ottawa, just outside of the capital city, by perhaps two, two or three miles. Um,
2: he was sufficiently well to. Uh, be interviewed, I understand. He had
0: just returned from the hospital. Uh, he was well enough for discussion and occasional uh, movement on uh, of his own volition. I see. Uh, he accompanied us uh, from the outside in, and then again when we left, uh, he accompanied us to the door. But from a oh, standpoint that, uh, of being really in good physical condition, uh, as of yet, he was not. Very unfortunate.
2: Well, um, you went to see him. Uh, I presume you had quite a few questions in your own mind that you would right. like answered.
0: Uh, yes, indeed.
2: Uh, supposing that uh, you just pick it up from there now for a little while, I'll keep interrupting your time. <laughs> All right. If you don't mind. Yeah, no, but because uh, you'll have
0: questions, of course, which I will fail to uh, foresee, and if anything does pop up, why, you be sure to ask. Wonderful. All right. Uh, From the time we met, immediately, I hope I didn't bug him with these questions, but uh, I did go on with quite a number of them to find out what his ideas were. I should say at first, uh, as we go into this, that uh, the opinions, the theories, and the statements which I will make uh, from here on into the recording will be those of Wilbert Smith. They are not necessarily those uh, of my own. First of all, it might be well to note that uh, Mr. Smith's ideas of what we call dimensions of reality are in uh, the number of twelve. He believes that there are twelve dimensions, which he calls parameters, and they are in sets of three each, that is, four fields, he calls them, or fabrics, perhaps I should say fabrics, uh, to which he referred. The first three we call the space fabric, and this is the one, of course, with which we're all familiar. Uh, The distance between two points we call length. As we move this length back and forth, we occupy an area, which is the second space fabric. And finally, as the area itself moves back and forth in the third plane, uh, we make volume. Now we go into what we commonly refer to as the fourth dimension, which is time. Uh, This, then, we have left now, the first three, space fabric, and we now enter what we call the field fabric. Time being the fourth parameter, we call this the tempic field. This, uh, according to Mr. Smith, is derived, actually, from volume, and each one of these, by the way, can be derived from the preceding. The uh, tempic field, then, is derived from volume. Uh, The fifth would be derived by going through the fourth, and so on right down through all 12 of these parameters. The tempic field, then, number four, uh, this is derived from volume through the application of the quadrature concept, something I'm unfortunately unable to discuss at this time, Um, not because of not being willing to, only because of lack of ability to. Number five, we have the electric field. Six, the magnetic field. Now, these complete the field fabric. Seven, eight, and nine are what we call the control fabric, or I should say, more correctly, what he calls the control fabric. Seventh is what he calls random and chaos disorganization. Eighth is the idea of the entering of free will or choice. And ninth, we finally have sequence or orderliness. Now, these are what he calls control fabric. The final three parameters, number ten, form... Number 11, Particularization, and 12, Aggregation. Now, we have completed by these, Length, Area, Volume, those again the first three parameters uh, comprising the space fabric, the Tempic Field, Electric Field, and Magnetic Field, those are 4, 5, and 6, comprising the field fabric, 7th, 8th, and 9th were of the Control Fabric, these were Random Chaos Disorganization, Free Will and Choice, sequence, and orderliness. Finally, the uh, precipitation, from the word perceived, the precipitation fabric. Tenth was form, eleventh particularization, and twelfth aggregation. So these were what he calls the twelve dimensions. Uh, He says that all of these concepts and measurements which we have in reality start at zero and extend to infinity, so that any of these twelve can actually be measured concretely, and they begin at zero or non-existence and extend to infinity without any finite limit. Any parameter, again, uh, can be reached as a natural consequence of the extension of the previous expression, so that we could get number five, for example, the electric field, by extending the time or tempic field, which was four. And then, uh, if we wanted, from volume going through which was three, going through four, and then to five, you see, so that any one of these can be reached by going through the other uh, fabrics. All right, this is the idea, then, of the 12 dimensions or parameters. Uh, Going on from there, let me handle first his idea of gravity, what gravity is, uh, natural as well as artificial. Gravity can be expressed as a formula, as an equation, actually, uh, as the product of first the square of the quantity polarization. And polarization is expressed as, for example, volts times centimeters or volt centimeters. This would be one way of saying polarization. Uh, we take this quantity after squaring it and multiply it times field divergence, which is a reciprocal quantity. It's 1 over the radius of whatever field uh, we are discussing. So that as a formula, we would have gravity equals polarization squared times the field divergence. Or, another way to express that would be gravity equals volt centimeters, the quantity squared, times 1 over the radius. This would be a means then of actually providing us with a uh, formula from which to work. Now we get into uh, artificial gravity. How can we actually produce? this? Well, we know a formula. Uh, We've just discussed that. So let's do some dealings then with the actual operation of this formula and apply it. In doing this, I have a disc here, which we'll have to describe, I think, to the audience, Earl. Um, As you can see, it's a disc approximately five inches in diameter. Perhaps I should uh, say that its construction is a ring of brass in which we have placed Several ceramic magnets in a concentric pattern around the center. I see eight there. Yes, that's right. There are eight of the little square ceramic magnets. Now uh, this has then been filled in order to keep these, beca- uh, in order to keep these in order. We have filled this ring and covered the magnets with a polyester material, actually a type of liquid plastic which has a curing agent. When we mix these two together, why it sets very hard. Uh, you can see it has a yellowish tint, and it's a very poor job from the standpoint of what I've been able to do with it. You know uh, that catalyst with it yourself? That's right. Mm, the these, that? That's right. These both come from uh, one of the large chemical distributors in uh, two cans, and then upon mixing we cure mm-hmm. one, and then it begins to set. Yeah. We have, then, a concentric configuration of eight ceramic magnets. These are flat little ceramic magnets, as you can see, having two broad surfaces. Uh, The surfaces, by the way, are the ones that are polarized north and south, not the ends or the edges, but the surfaces. So the large surfaces on top are all north, and on the bottom, all south. So that uh, when we have these in this concentric configuration, why we have uh, only north pole on one side and only south pole on the other side, making the whole ring itself uh, polarized one side to the other, north and south. And this is a brass ring on this the is outside a brass that has ring. no That's magnetic... Ring. None whatsoever. The only magnetism is inherent in the ceramic magnet. Oh, yes. Now, according to Mr. Smith, an artificial gravity can be produced by this device by finding its perfect center, balancing it well, and spinning it. Now, it's not a question of just putting it on a, a pencil after drilling a hole and whirling it around. Uh, this has to be spun at a very high, very appreciable... Uh, spin, a uh, rate of spin. His experimental model, he was able to get up to 15,000 revolutions per minute. Now, to do this, he took the disc, mounted it on a shaft, actually a non magnetic permeable shaft, so that uh, it would have no magnetic effect. Uh, this shaft then went down to a motor. It was a series wound motor, so that we could get up tremendous speeds with this low load on it. The uh, motor he used was a vacuum cleaner motor, the fuel coil of which was fed by a rheostat, which had been connected in series with the line voltage. Uh, The uh, line voltage he used was 220 volts. Now, of course, the 110-volt vacuum cleaner motor on a 220-volt line would really spin, and this was the idea. He did achieve 15,000 revolutions per minute with this. Now he had done this, uh, by the way, the first results, unfortunately, uh, were quite a calamity. The thing blew up like a hand grenade because of the tremendous velocity that was reached, its uh, spinning velocity. So, of course, uh, some measure had to be taken in order to protect the observers, the experimenters, which was done. They built a well out of concrete block, and then the entire unit was placed in this uh, well. And this worked quite well. The well worked well. Uh, <laughs> On spinning it then, they found they had one that apparently wasn't going to blow up, this next one, and it would be a good idea now to try some rather positive uh, steps in experimental work. The ones that they used, uh, there were two. First, they took a a wristwatch. Now, the reason they did this, uh, remember originally in our 12 parameters, we discussed the possibility that... Uh, time was one of the parameters. In fact, we call it the fourth dimension. As we go through others, we get into electric field and the magnetic and so on, which uh, possibly has something to do, you see, with gravity. And this was the experiment to see whether there was a relationship. Well, now, obviously, if these are all interrelated and we warp one of them, creating, for example, an artificial gravity, then perhaps there'd be a noticeable effect in one of the other uh, parameters that we could observe. So what they did, they took a wristwatch. I would presume, although I don't know, I would presume it was an anti-magnetic watch, Um, and this was then placed in the field, uh, the magnetic field of the disc, which was then spun. Now upon spinning this at 15,000 RPM with the watch in close proximity to it, uh, this was done for a period, actually, of uh, five minutes, and at the end of this five minute interval, the watch was again removed and uh, checked, and it had lost 20 seconds. So very definitely, the watch had lost 20 seconds, a perfectly well-running watch, I might add, in this five-minute interval of uh, the field being uh, placed in proximity to it. Now, of course, one might immediately say, well, if it were a... Uh, magnetic magnetically susceptible watch, perhaps the magnetism itself had something to do with this. Well, this is quite true, and this is the reason, of course, why it should have uh, definite experimental uh, work before one can come to any uh, particular conclusions about it. However, I would uh, uh, definitely assure myself that Mr. Smith probably knows when a watch is magnetic or non-magnetic, and that he would not use a magnetic watch in a, a magnetic field. This, of course, would be absurd. And I feel quite confident that he did take this precaution. Uh, the next experiment that was used, uh, I will do have to delve a little bit into electronic theory on this one. I hope I can, as a radio ham, I hope I'll be able to uh, uh, do some justice to this. We find that if we take a coil of wire uh, and we put across it a device called a capacitor, that this will have a distinct... A sensitivity to a particular radio frequency, that is, a certain number of prescribed turns with a certain type of capacitor across it will have what we call a resonance to a certain radio frequency. Now, uh, we find that he did this, uh, by he of course I mean Mr. Smith, he took a coil of wire and put a capacitor across it and he shielded it well so that no extraneous uh, effects around it would change the resonant frequency of this. And uh, uh, this is what we call, actually, an LC oscillator. The L stands for, oddly enough, inductance, uh, which is the coil, and the C stands for capacitance, that is the capacitor that's placed across it to determine the frequency. And this coil, uh, this probe, I should say, and uh, consisting of a capacitor and a coil, were fed through a shielded piece of coaxial cable, uh, and the device itself was shielded into an oscillator. This oscillator then, of course, this circuit, uh, would be the frequency uh, of which it would oscillate was, of course, contingent upon the configuration of that coil and the capacitor. Now, uh, they had a very distinct uh, frequency. They monitored it on a receiver. Uh, They heard it on the receiver. They put a beat frequency oscillator on the receiver, which is a device that provides a frequency very close to the one that that original coil and capacitor were resonant to. Now, when we get two frequencies right together, we get what we call a beat note. That is a resultant uh, frequency as a result of the two playing against each other. Now, this is an audible note. The LC uh, oscillator probe, then, was put into this revolving field, and upon doing so, as soon as it was put in, the... uh, There was a distinct change in the note, very distinct, I mean a tremendous change in the beat note. Now, this meant, without any question, the only thing that could possibly have changed was the time uh, that was involved, because the mechanics of the coil was still there, the capacitor uh, was still the same type. Uh, You might say, well, if this is spinning, perhaps we're going to get, if it's a magnet and it's spinning, perhaps we're going to get a voltage buildup that's going to have some uh, some effect. However, might I remind you that the only way that you can induce voltage into a coil with a magnet spinning is if if the magnet is spinning end over end, so we get north, south, north, south, like that. And this, remember, isn't. The axis of the magnetic field is spinning, so that we always have exactly the same amount of north or exactly the same amount of south all the time it's spinning. So this uh, definitely would not come into play here at all. Uh, Again, then, when he placed this LC oscillator coil into the field that was being set up uh, by this spinning disk, we notice a very distinct shift in frequency of that coil, without any question. So these were two experiments that were done, and uh, both noticeably had uh, effect by being placed in this field. The next theory of Mr. Smith, which I shall endeavor to discuss, is that of a fascinating, I find it, one of the most fascinating of all, and this is tensor energy, tensor energy. Mr. Smith refers to tensor energy, actually, as a polydimensional vector. That is, it's a definite vector quantity. It can be measured, it's going somewhere, we can say, and it can be measured. It's polydimensional, however, that is, there are various aspects of dimension to it. Normally, we think of energy as me- measured uh, in orthodox x, y, and z axes, uh, or that uh, possibly in arithmetic expressions L, M, and N. These are different types of measuring, of course, dimensions. Uh, tensor energy is what Mr. Smith refers to a six dimensional space wave. Not six, but six dimensions, actually. Six dimensional space wave. It has no velocity all points then would be at interval zero that is if it has no velocity you see we don't have to think of uh point to point crests on it as a space wave you see we don't have to think of these points as having certain time intervals because there is none it's uh it has interval zero it's not uh under any particular velocity it has then freedom from both space and time both space and time now to wind a coil which will be able to actually transfer electrical or we might say electromagnetic that is high frequency radio frequency uh, energy into tensor energy i have a device here which uh, is wound as per mr smith's instructions now what we do we start out with a piece of ferrite core now ferrite of course is the Uh, ferric oxide material in a clay matrix which is used as the antennae uh, are used as antennae in the backs of the little transistor radios and even the transoceanic uh, shortwave radios and so on use these. They're they're a core partially (laughs) magnetically permeable but uh, for the most part they're almost just like a hard clay or they look really like slate but they do have it's uh, artificially man-made Uh, And it is a clay matrix with ferric oxide in it, so that it is partially magnetic. Now, we take this, and the diameter of this rod has to be one-eighth of the length, one-seventh to one-eighth, right in there. This is fairly critical, but not terribly critical. Uh, The one I have here, of course, is approximately, I would say, three-eighths diameter. Uh, Unfortunately, this isn't good enough. Uh, Mr. Smith used for his one that was an inch in diameter and eight inches long. This, of course, is a very large piece of ferrite core, not the type that one might be able to find in a radio stock at your local radio wholesale distributor, as I well know. This uh, summer I am working for a local wholesale uh, radio house, and unfortunately I've been unable to get any as of yet after several weeks of trying, but some of the coil companies probably do stock this material, and I have ordered it. Now, the coil is wound uh, in a very weird fashion, actually. We start with a long hunk of insulated wire, perhaps number 22, 24, 26, cotton covered, uh, so that we have it insulated. And then we take the uh, very long length of it, probably uh, if we have one, for example, an inch in diameter, an eight inches long, naturally we'd have to use probably 20 or 30, maybe even 40 feet of wire by the time we're through uh, winding to wind it over the entire uh, surface. We start then by taking the wire, the one length, and doubling it over so that we have two free ends, and then at the uh, opposite, of course, we have the loop where it uh, turns over and comes back again. Now we take the ferrite core and we start at that loop. In other words, we've taken this double-backed wire and pull it over the one end of the ferrite core so that we're up snug against it, and we have two leads, now each equal in length, uh, going back from the core, and then we start winding, each lead going in the opposite direction around this ferrite core. In doing this, uh, as we come around and the two leads meet for the first time on the uh, halfway around this ferrite core, we cross them over. Let's say we cross the right one over the left one. Now, on that side, every time these leads again come around, we have to do it exactly the same way. And I mean exactly symmetrical, without any variation detectable. So that uh, when we're through now, we will have then on this one side, as the leads come around, right going over left. Then these leads, of course, pass around and get back to the original side again, and we go left over right. You see, just the opposite. Now we repeat this all the way down the coil, starting out with the loop first coming around halfway around the coil, and we put right over left. Then we pull these around to the other side, and left goes over right. And then all the way down like this. They're tight wound against each other, tight wound against the core. And when we're through and we look at this, we'll see that on one side of the rod, they're all right over left. On the other side of the rod, all left over right so that this goes all the way the entire length of the coil and finally down at the bottom of the coil when we finish we simply lightly twist these and pull away a lead with which we can work as an actual lead. Now as I mentioned this coil has to be completely symmetrical. If there's any variations whatsoever, uh, according to Mr. Smith, it will not work. As a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Smith has wound several of these. Not all of them worked, and some of them would work only after rewinding the same core with the same wire in what appeared to be the same fashion, but probably just approaching a better uh, symmetry. Upon completion of this, we try to find what the resonant frequencies are of this coil now i say r this seems strange i said before that a coil of wire of course with a given capacitor across it will have a one particular resonant frequency however this coil by the very configuration of its winding has a large number of resonant frequencies and what we call harmonics now we take this coil and we use an instrument called a grid dip oscillator A GDO, or grid dip oscillator, is a device very commonly used by hams as well as technicians to find out what frequencies we're dealing with after we've wound a coil. Is it wound to the frequency uh, for which we intend to use it? On taking this grid dip oscillator, then, we will put the coil of the grid dip oscillator next to this tensor energy converter coil. And we'll start swinging the control on there and read directly from this grid dip oscillator exactly what frequencies this thing seems to be sensitive to. There's a little meter. And this little meter on the grid dip oscillator, that is, the instrument uh, with which we are checking this tensor energy converted coil, the little meter will dip. That's where we get the name, the dip uh, part of the grid dip oscillator. The meter itself will swing downward when we go across the frequency to which this is sensitive or resonant. And then we read on the calibration on the meter uh, exactly what the frequency is to which this is particularly resonant. I've done that with this small coil i built, and i found, for example, this has a resonant, of three, a resonant uh, frequency of 3.64 megacycles, 8.1 megacycles, 18.2 megacycles, 43 megacycles, and just above 250 megacycles. So that obviously then, even this small one with larger wire than should be on here, as a large number, in fact, uh, five that I checked, and perhaps even more that I didn't check, uh, frequencies to which this is sensitive. Now, the application of this coil, how do we actually determine whether this coil is going to be doing something weird? In, in fact, what is it supposed to do? Well, we take the coil, we remember what frequencies we've had, and we put it on a transmitter. Now let's deal for a moment with the outcome of the experiments done by Mr. Smith with his own coil. I think this is better, inasmuch as I haven't put this coil that I have just wound on a transmitter yet. Mr. Smith had a coil which uh, uh, was resonant uh, on well, his, for example, between two and twenty uh, megacycles. There were twelve resonant points, and uh, he found that on taking this, uh, that one of the resonant points was very close to four megacycles, very close to four megacycles. So, they took a Collins KW1, which is a thousand watt amateur transmitter, tuned it up to four megacycles, and fed the output of this high-powered transmitter into uh, his uh, tensor energy converter coil, which was number 14 copper wire, which had been wound on a one-inch ferrite core, again, eight inches long. So the Collins KW1 then was set on master oscillator, which is VFO, or variable frequency, so that it could be changed instead of being crystal controlled, and then they'd have to see whatever crystals they had to determine the frequency they were going to uh, transmit into this coil. Uh, They set it at four megacycles. The coil itself, the tensor energy converter coil, was mounted in a copper box. Now, they thought by mounting it in a copper box, this would shield it from re-radiating any energy that went into it. So that uh, what he was thinking, if this transmitter was putting out a tremendous amount of electromagnetic energy, and this tensor energy coil were not only accepting it, but converting it into something, then of course the coil itself uh, would possibly get hot if it were absorbing this and re-radiating it, now, if we put a shield around it, it can't re radiate it into space. This energy that's being transferred into here will be actually shielded from being re radiated. So we put the copper uh, shield around it and fed it with this 1,000 watts of radio frequency energy at uh, its four megacycle resonant point. Uh, according to Mr. Smith, as we take the transmitter and change its frequency, So that uh, we cover all the frequencies to which this tensor energy converter coil is actually resonant, or as many as possible, we'll find at least one, one frequency, uh, which seems to actually accept infinite power without ever heating to any appreciable degree. So that here we have uh, a coil of wire which should heat by all rights if a lot of power is being fed to it. But according to Mr. Smith, we actually have a coil in this tensor energy. That will accept all radio frequency power that can even be put to it. And it will not re-radiate it. It does not store it up. It's going somewhere, but where? Well, according to Mr. Smith, uh this material into which the radio frequency energy is being changed is tensor energy. Now tensor energy being uh having no particular velocity, no particular time intervals involved, you see, because of course uh as he mentions, there's there's uh, no time intervals in between the crests of the wave, although it is a definitely a wave form. Uh, it doesn't have to go anywhere and be uh, radiated at the speed of light or anything like this. So it actually apparently can just store up. Uh, and according to him, it in fact does this. Now a report on this from uh, one other radio ham whom I uh, know quite well. Uh, this man's name is Robert Oxaner. W9AUT is his call letters. He lives uh, right now in uh, Chicago, Illinois, and uh, he lived with uh, Mr. Smith and his family for approximately a month while he was on stay in Canada for one time, and during this time uh, he helped him with some of these experiments and actually saw it in operation. According to Bob Oxaner, they hooked the tensor energy coil up to this Collins transmitter and uh, the, they suddenly dislodged, actually dislodged this coil from the transmitter, and there was a pop, a crack as they dislodged it, and angel hair precipitated out all over the floor of the laboratory in which they were doing this operation. So this, of course, uh, very interesting, brings up a, a possibility. Number one, is angel hair actually a result of this warp perhaps we are producing, whatever it might be, the actual conversion of electromagnetic energy, a field of electromagnetic energy, into a field of tensor energy, or, as some people uh, would say, and the possibility, of course, is uh, equally great, is angel hair actually ionized air? Here we have a sudden snap, you see, uh, an electrical, an electromagnetic field, and an electrical discharge with this high power. So possibly, you see, we have air naturally around it. We have an electrical discharge. Everything, you see, perfect, conducive for the formation of something as a result of ionization of the surrounding air. The next theory of which uh, Mr. Smith holds the authorship is that of reduced binding force. Now, as you probably know, binding force can best be described as that nuclear force which holds molecules together in their binding it holds uh, atoms together to form molecules. It holds solids to remain solid, liquid to remain liquid, gas to remain gas. It's the force that uh, keeps the molecules from dispersing. It actually holds them together. This we refer to as binding force. According to Mr. Smith, there are wandering about the Earth areas which he calls uh, vortices in which there have been reduce uh, reductions, I should say, reductions in the binding force. he calls these very appropriately, reduced binding force vortices. Now these vortices are actually formed by the detonation of nuclear devices. Uh, Mr. Smith contends that every time there is a detonation of a nuclear device, at uh, the area of detonation and the gravitational antipode, that is the point approximately on the other side of the Earth in which we have the opposite uh, from this point of gravity, the opposite uh, counterpart at the other side of the Earth. At these two points, we have an area produced of reduced binding. Now you might say, well, how big are they? And, of course, you're going to ask, what do they do? Well, according, uh, let me answer the first question, which I asked first. The... uh, binding force vortex itself is approximately a 1,000 feet or perhaps even a mile in diameter. They vary greatly, and of course uh, both of them, regardless whether it be on the point or at the point in which we have the detonation or at the gravitational antipode on the other side of the Earth, it's uh, still about a 1,000 feet to a mile in diameter are these uh, uh, vortices. Uh, What do they do? Was the The next question I suggested to be asked, and the answer to this, is that they do reduce the structural tensile strength of materials. Um, For example, in Canada, there was a bridge collapse. Some of uh, Mr. Smith's associates with devices which would detect that, which we shall discuss in a moment, went to this area, and these devices uh, definitely, most decidedly, and positively registered reduced binding area. They had a crash of a, uh, an airplane, a large commercial plane, right at takeoff from an airfield. And of course, uh, at takeoff, we have maximum stress. We have the fuselage still trying to set down on Earth. We have the wings with, of course, lift being pulled up. And at this point, we have the maximum stress on the, uh, the fuselage against the wings. And this plane did fold and crash. Uh, immediately then, Mr. Smith and some of his associates, or just the associates, again, uh, uh, this is irrelevant, went into the area with the binding force detectors and uh, very positively, again, did find that there was reduced binding. Now, how do we make one of these uh, detectors to find out whether there is a, such a thing? Uh, well, it is worthwhile, I believe, to make such a detector. For example, a practical application of this. Steel samples were tested in Ottawa at the National Research Council at 90,000 pounds per square inch of tensile strength. These same steel samples were shipped to Washington Bureau of Standards. At the Washington Bureau of Standards, they were 5,000 pounds per square inch. There was definitely a difference here, you see, between the binding forces at the two locations. So this has a practical as well as an interesting theoretical possibility. Uh, we could have one of these as a monitor. We can have it going. If one of these should uh, go by, you see, and perhaps we are doing something demanding a maximum stress on machinery or something like this, why, of course, we can immediately see whether we're in an area of reduced binding force. Again, might I say, of course, that I'm trying to represent as fairly as possible uh, Mr. Smith's theories as to this. A very convenient device for measuring reduced binding would be anything which is put under a tremendous amount of tensile strength right up to its normal breaking point and just before this point at which it's about to warp out of shape. And we'll put an indicator needle, for example, and mark on a background that this is uh, where this needle is uh, and is normally being pulled. Uh, for example, if we had a spring that would stretch out of shape at, say, 20 pounds, we'll pull it to 19 pounds, put an indicator needle at the point at which it's Uh, having its maximum deflection, and put a mark, a little graphic uh, mark right behind it as to uh, where it has been pulled. Now, if we went into an area of reduced binding, you see, and this thing were to stretch uh, because of this, not being able to withstand the pull under which it had been subjected, why, of course, we would see that it would deflect from that little point that we had marked on the uh, uh, escutcheon behind it. Now, a good device we can actually build... Uh, to duplicate this means of detection of reduced binding force is this nylon monofilament fishing line which i have here one has a two pound test and the other is a much greater pull i think it's somewhere around eight or ten pounds test now if we take these two and we take maybe just a couple inches or so of each maybe six inches of each and tie a common end together from each of them and pull Obviously, we can get to a certain point at which one will stretch out of shape, perhaps even break. The other one will still be well within its tolerance. The reason, of course, we use the both lines as being made of uh, the same material, nylon, is that they will be self-compensating in terms of humidity variation and in terms of temperature variation. I saw a device which was constructed by one of the members of the Ottawa UFO group. This man is a an instrument maker, and he constructed a device that was beautifully balanced. It consisted of a a knife blade edge, which was uh, being pulled from both sides. In other words, it was in a notch, the blade was in a notch, and both sides uh, were being pulled down by a, a nylon strand. One was the thin nylon, one was the heavier nylon on the other side, and these were then pulled down very, very tightly, and he had a long indicator needle on here, which was against a, uh, a scored escutcheon, which, of course, was set at zero. And as this would pull one way or another, there would be, of course, with the slightest amount of change in binding force, this needle would uh, show a very great deviation, a great deflection.
2: This has been very interesting, uh, having you tell us about the theories of Wilbert Smith. Um, now, of course, as you know, I am extremely interested in UFOs, Uh, else I wouldn't belong to NICAP and more recently, APRO, and of course, having been first chairman of the Cleveland Ufology Project. But uh, I presume that in your talks with him, you did discuss the UFO picture, because he does know a great deal about UFOs. Isn't that correct, Bob? Most
0: decidedly. There's no doubt about that at all, Earl. Uh, Wilbert Smith was, of course, the director, chairman, however you want to refer to it, of the Project Magnet, uh, also called Canada's Flying Saucer Lookout Lab, which was under the auspices of the Canadian Department of Transportation, their equivalent more or less to our Federal Communications Commission, also our Transportation Regulations uh, Governing Agency. This was a little laboratory which was uh, constructed... Up in Shirley Bay, Ontario, near Ottawa, near Mr. Smith's home, actually within just a few minutes of uh, automobile transportation time, uh, they had in this little building a large number of small, small pieces of electronic equipment and so on. They had a device, for example, for detecting any changes in radiation. They had devices for magnetic changes, devices for gravitational flux, uh, various geophysical devices like this, and. But one instant, uh, I've been assured, uh, this definitely did operate. We had, uh, for example, uh, Bob Oxaner, a friend of Wilbert Smith, a fairly close friend, and one who has seen a large number of Wilbert Smith's efforts in the UFO field, uh, knew of an instance in which all of the devices sounded at once. Not only did they all sound the alarm at once, but also they went off-scale in their measurements of whatever phenomenon it was which did take place. So it definitely did work. It's a shame they had to close it up. Uh, I thought for a while, as most people did, that the reason they closed it up was that the publicity uh, might have been unfavorable to the government if UFOs do not exist, then why does the government have this special project? Well, this is, of course, a very logical explanation as to why it might be closed up. However, I've been assured by Mr. Smith that one of the prime reasons it was closed up was not this at all, but was because he himself was constantly just hounded, it was terrible, hounded by the press from over-publicity. Uh, there was definitely some of taxpayers' disapproval, there's no doubt about this, but Wilbert Smith, being, uh, shall we say, a mere man, was, of course, uh, hounded to death by the, by publicity and hounded to death by publicity seekers and, of course, the newspapers, which uh, was inhuman, I guess, the just about the treatment he received from constantly being badgered. So for this...
1: that's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space and thank you so much for listening.